the active side is very similar. We put a lot of time and effort and frustration into getting these deals executed and such. And so that's the benefit of being a passive investor. Yeah, your compensation on an individual basis might be a little bit less, but I guarantee you're sleeping a lot better at night than what we are on the active side. Are you ready to transform your life? This is a no-nonsense show helping immigrants like you create generational wealth, even while working full-time. Get ready to take notes. Here's your host, Socket Jane. All right, everyone. Today, I have the pleasure to talk to two good-looking dudes here, Cody and Brian. I was telling them up front, I did not get the memo of the bright blue shirt. I am wearing a blue shirt, but not the bright blue shirt. So I do feel a little bit left out. Hey, Cody and Brian. We'll have to get you a shirt with the nice Blue Oak Capital logo on it as well. I don't mind it, man. If I can get the blue shirt, I'm okay with that. Send it over. (laughs) (laughs) But by the way, guys, thank you again for taking the time. I know you guys are busy running deals, finding investors. So I really appreciate your time. We appreciate you having us, man. We're excited to be here. Absolutely. Excited to be here. No, thank you. Thank you. So the way uh, we open up the show always, Cody and Brian, is we always remind our listeners what we stand for. Like The show's name is Migrate to Wealth. And the most important word, as appealing as it may, is not wealth. It's actually the word migrate, right? Because as you and I, I know you, you both live by that. 80% to 90% of what we do in life is mindset. Rest is all mechanics. Mm-hmm. So we want to bring that same level of mindset, how you traverse your journey, what challenges you faced in your life to essentially push our listeners towards taking massive actions. right? And that happens to a shift in mindset. So with that said, Cody and Brian, I'll let you decide who goes first. I would love my audience to know who you guys are, what do you stand for, especially what you do in your day-to-day life today. Sure, sure. Well, again, Saka, thank you for being here, man. Really excited to share our story. And I know you were recently on our show and we just had a fantastic conversation about, you know, really this, like you said, migrating to wealth and uh, really enjoyed that. But, you know, my background is probably very similar to many others that are listening in. You know, I started my real estate investing career shortly after I started a W 2 career, which was in 2008, 2010. Uh, my wife and I found ourselves becoming accidental landlords. You know, we we had bought a new home, we were trying to sell our first home, housing market was in the dumps, and we couldn't afford to pay two mortgages. And so all we knew is we were in a financial strain and we needed to figure out a solution. So we put a tenant in our first property, said, you know what, we'll figure it out from there. And it was through that experience. I discovered the power of owning investment real estate. I went and saw my accountant that year, got a tax return back, and I was like, holy smokes, Like, what is that? And they were like, this is what happens when you own investment real estate. And for me, light bulbs started going off. So I began really studying you know, what investment real estate could do for an investment portfolio. And through that, start, it led me down the path of pursuing real estate entrepreneurship. Now, Full transparency. I was a lot younger then and a little less focused. And so I was chasing some shiny objects and took a few detours along the way that cost me some very expensive lessons along the way, but thankful for those experiences now. But, you know, fast forward several years, got recommitted back to real estate as my sole investment vertical and started out in, you know, again, with residential real estate, trying a bunch of different strategies, primarily fix and flip and realized. I'm working myself into a second job. You know, I have a full-time W-2. I've got my family at home. And here it is. I'm going to this property after every shift at the hospital on my days off on the weekends, making sure that the contractor is doing what they're supposed to do. I was like, this is not 
what I envisioned real estate investing to be. You know, this was not passive income to me. And I was like, there has to be a better way. And that's what drew me into commercial real estate and looking at the opportunities through syndication, right? Relying on a team of partners, relying on a team of investors that can allow you to go buy bigger buildings with more economies of scale and bring on team members to help manage those things for you. So I'm not the one in the weeds every day. And I was really, really drawn to that. And so, and then I started seeing the power of the time on return on your time and investment being multiplied by working uh, on commercial versus residential. So that became my focus in 2019. Was very, very fortunate and blessed to have met two great partners, uh, our partner, John, who's not with us today, and then uh, Brian. And you know we launched Blue Capital early 2020 and have been just blessed with opportunity since then. You know We've partnered in four syndications, 850 units, uh, I don't know, about $116 million value in our portfolio and looking to continue to grow that from there. So. Uh, that's my high level story. I'll turn it over to Brian for his. Awesome. Awesome. Saka, thanks for having us again. I love the, the show title, Migrate to Wealth, because it really highlights my journey and from a mindset standpoint on why I got into real estate and why I got into commercial real uh, into real estate in general, but commercial real estate in particular. So I was in my late 20s at the time when I was thinking about life. I was reflecting. I was like, man, life's going pretty well. I graduated college, first person in my family to graduate college, making good money at the time for my age, at least. I just gotten married. My wife had just, you know, we, we just, we were looking to start a family soon and we just bought our first house. So it was like checking all the boxes. Life was going really well, but I was looking around and I was always asking myself like, Hey, how do I set the bar in my family for the generations to come? How do I be a great role model for those around me, whether they're in my family or friends, and show them what can be done when you sort of take a, a detour, you take a different path than the W-2 job, work for 30, 40 years, retire with your 401k and kind of cross your fingers that the stock market's not down at the time. And the one thing I noticed looking around at all these successful entrepreneurs and people that were very wealthy that the few people that I did know are the people that I was studying that were popular is they all had real estate in their portfolio. All of them doesn't mean they were full-time real estate investors, but they were leveraging the power of real estate to continue to preserve and build their wealth. So to me, I was like, oh, well, these guys are doing it and they're smarter than me, wiser than me, and they have way more money than me. Uh, I should probably do that too. So that started leading me towards uh, learning about real estate in particular. And, and I always wanted to get into commercial real estate. That was where I wanted to start, but I had a very limiting mindset at the time, which I know I'm sure you talk about on your show here a lot is you can only do what you tell yourself you can do, which sounds silly, but it's so true. And at the time, I didn't know what I didn't know. And I was telling myself the way to buy real estate was to take 20%, put 20% down and to whatever you had in your bank account, that's all you could buy. So if I'm trying to buy a $100,000 house and I need 20 grand, if I don't have 20 grand, I can't, I can't buy any real estate because I didn't know any better than that. Right. So I started following down that path, ended up doing residential real estate for about 18 months, give or take, and very quickly realized that I wasn't getting the economies of scale that I thought I was going to get. And the question that I really asked myself, which I like to ask anybody interested in real estate who says they want to be an active investor, says they want to be a passive investor, the question I asked myself and I like to ask others is, do you want to be a real estate investor or do you want to build a real estate investing business? Because there's two totally different things. You could be a real estate investor and just, you know, you could be a hard money lender, or you could be a passive investor in syndications, or you can invest in REITs and call that a real estate investor if you wanted to. But building a real estate investing business is totally different. And I had the long-term goal of building that real estate investing business. So once I realized that, I had that epiphany um, 
I said, you know what? Commercial was always the goal. I, I don't want to look back in five or 10 years and go, man, I should have did it back then when I'm in my late 30s, early 40s. So I said, hey, now's the time to make the jump. I don't have anything to lose, so to speak. My wife and I, you know, we have our house, we have our jobs. If we needed to hit the reset button, we could, you know, being at the age we're at. And that's when I dived in, started getting educated, started listening to podcasts like this one. I talk a lot about the mindset, not so much the X's and O's, because I knew that was important. Got in a real estate mastermind, met Cody and John in there. We formed Blue Oak Capital, and then we were off to the races. That's awesome. That's such, um, such an interesting story. Both of you have distinct journeys like anyone else, but there's so many commonalities, right? And, and I love that how all of our paths are crossing because of real estate, right? Real estate is, could you help me understand? I'm going to ask the question and Cody and Brian, you guys decide uh, who wants to go with it. Why real estate? Did you ever look at, I think, Brian, you mentioned a little bit that all successful people have real estate holdings but they don't just have the real estate holding either, right? All successful people could have a diversified portfolio. So I would love to get deeper into why did you end up picking both Cody and Brian real estate? And even then, more importantly, multifamily uh, syndications as a path to go versus other asset classes that are available. Sure. I want to go back to the beginning of my story. And you know, my journey, when you talk about what's the migration to entrepreneurship and wealth, right? Where my migration started during the great financial crisis. You know, I mentioned I started my W-2 career, which was in healthcare in 2008, which everybody knows that was just the bottom of the great financial crisis, right? So I'm working for these two years, 2008, 2009, going into 2010. And I'm watching people that I'm working with that 30, 40 years into their career that are nearing retirement and they're just absolutely decimated. You know, they're, they're looking at their investment portfolio, their 401k, and they're like, I can't retire. Here it is. I'm looking for the light at the end of the tunnel. And now I've got to work for another five years to make up for the losses that we just experienced in the great financial crisis. And I really thought about that. And I'm like, wait a minute. Something doesn't add up. We went through, you know, you go through your formal education, you, you're taught that these, 401k are your vehicles to retirement. And then here it is, I'm doing that. I started my 401k investments right into my W2 career. Right when I started, I was maxing out my 401k, working extra shifts in the hospital to, to put as much away as I could, saving for retirement, only to realize that, wait a minute, this is a roll of the dice. You know, these people are just taking a gamble at hoping that their 401k is going to be in a position to where they can actually retire. Uh, with a decent lifestyle. And, you know, you face with factors that are outside of your control. You know, they didn't have any influence over the great financial crisis or whatnot. All they knew is their retirement accounts were wiped out for, you know, various circumstances. And so that was the first light bulb moment for me that was like, okay, there has to be a better way than when it comes to investing. And then again, coincidentally around that time, I found myself being an accidental landlord. And as kind of Brian discovered through my studies and through, you know, investigation on, you know, why real estate is a powerful investment vertical, I realized that 90% of the wealthy have their wealth tied to real estate, you know, and that was really eye-opening for me. And that was really, I guess, the introduction into really true financial literacy for me. And that's why I started pursuing real estate entrepreneurship, because I knew if I relied on one fixed income for 30, 40, 50 years and hope that I can retire with a 401k account, 
chances are I'm not going to have the lifestyle that I dreamed of for me and my family uh, the long term. And so that was, I owe everything that I've done in my investing career right now to that experience through the great financial crisis. Brian, anything on top of it? Yeah, I was just going to ask, you know, for me personally, and this isn't for everybody, I like to invest in things I understand. And I don't always understand what's going on in the stock market. It's something that I don't have control over. It's heavily influenced by the media and news and what comes out in the political realm. And not saying real estate is completely disconnected, but it's not as volatile and it's a hard asset. I can go and touch my real estate and actually influence it by performing at a higher level. I can push the NOI and I can improve the overall value of the property. If I'm in the stock market and the equities market, I can't do anything now. I got to hope that I buy low and sell high. That's really the formula if you're trying to time the market. And with real estate, it's a little bit different. It's a long-term wealth building game. And somebody in our mentorship group uh, has a famous saying that I always thought was really powerful. And he said that cash flow will make you rich, but equity will make you wealthy. Right. So that was another thing that when I heard that, like, man, where can I find equity? Where can I find that long-term wealth that's not volatile? It's not, I don't want it to be liquid for all, all of my portfolio because liquidity leads to emotional decisions. When we have liquidity, when we are able to hit the buy and sell button from the fingertips of our phone, we make very emotional decisions. So because of me and my personality, that's why real estate made a lot of sense for me. Mm-hmm. Now I know why I have you both on the show because <laughs> it's like I'm listening myself to talk here. <laughs> uh, you know, kind of like the same similar. And I couldn't agree with you more, right? Because I think it's more about, you know, I think we've talked about it on uh, different occasions now that the illiquidity or perceived illiquidity of real estate, how important it may be, it actually plays in your favor, right? Yes. And I just saw a post on Facebook by somebody I really admire. There's like stock markets down 20% or 17% year over year in 2022. And now everyone's afraid of taking their money out of stock market which essentially means stock markets are liquid right now. Right? Mm-hmm. So I think there's kind of like, and Brian, you mentioned something very important as well, more about, hey, you know what it's about, what is your control on it, right? So let's actually elaborate on that, right? Because here is a question that I guess asked every single time, and I'm sure you guys do too, is and if I'm invest, actually, you know what, before we go to that question, let's talk about a little bit about your business as well, right? So you do syndications right now, which mm-hmm. essentially means you pull, pull a group of investors together, find investment deals and you run them. So you play an active role in those deals and you um, have passive investors investing in that deal. I'm oversimplifying it, but a very abstract level. That's what I do. That's what you guys do, right? So why did you choose to become active? Because active is not something for faint of the heart, right? Because it's a lot of work. All three of us have talked about it length of that. That Mm -hmm. it's not for the faint of the heart. It's nice. Do you want to be an investor or do you want to be a business owner? Active investment is a business ownership, right? So why did you pick a path of active versus passive? And do you do both? Do you do one or the other? Where do you you lie on that? Yeah. So for me, in response to the question surrounding why being an active investor, there, there was two answers for that. Number one, as I was, I, you know, discovering this new found information about financial literacy, I I really began again reflecting on my career and realizing that I don't want to be giving or trading my time away for money, right? Mm -hmm. I want to live life on my own terms. I want to live life 
on my own control. And I want my family to be a benefactor of that, right? I don't want to keep missing school events with the kids or sporting events with the kids because I've got to go to work. And I don't want somebody else telling me what my time and value is worth, you know? And as I continue to reflect on that, I was like, I need to get out of this. You know, the only way to really truly be free and have control of your time is to be your own entrepreneur, your own independent boss. And that was the big drive for me to be active, number one. Like Brian said, you know, we want to build a business out of this, right? This isn't about just investing. But then the second part of that too, when you look at the investment world as a whole, you have to have money. It takes money to make money. You know, that is the reality. And going into the multifamily side in particular, I didn't have any liquidity or capital that I could really leverage to get into these, you know, bigger investments. And that's why I was spending time in the residential real estate with the hope of, okay, I'll do some single family flips, I'll build up some capital, and I'll go deploy that multifamily. Well, I ended up losing on every single family flip. And we can spend a whole nother podcast on all those mistakes. But the, the point is, is I never really saw a true path to building liquidity through that investment strategy that I can leverage quickly. And I said, you know what? I've got a lot of skills that I can apply. I've got the work ethic and drive to go be active. I'm just going to go leverage what my value proposition will be and just go put together a team that will allow me to get into syndication. And we'll just partner with other investors that may have more liquidity than mm-hmm. I do. And, and that was kind of my motivation. So, and then I'll, Brian, you want to go ahead and answer your question? Yeah. The, the easy answer for me, Socket, is uh, I was 30 years old. So when you're 30 years old, you're ready to go to work, man. Yeah. You don't want to be sitting on the sidelines, you know, being a passive investor. So for me, a lot of it was life stage, you know, being being 30 years old when I first got into commercial real estate multifamily, I wanted to get my hands dirty. I wanted to be on the active side. And then the question that I asked earlier is, do I want to be a real estate investor or do I want to build a real estate business? It was the latter for me. I wanted to build a real estate business. And to me, for me personally, my long-term goal when I'm in my late 40s, early 50s, and I'm starting to finally slow down and settle down, I want to be a full-time passive investor. That's what my goal Mm -hmm. is. And the best way for me to be the most educated passive investor is I'm getting to spend time on the active side. So I'm meeting the up-and-coming sponsors who are going to be in great positions 5, 10, 15 years from now. I'm looking at the underwriting. I'm talking to investors. I know what stones you know unturn, so to speak, because I've been on the active side. But point I want to make sure that I highlight is you said it, you, you alluded to it, Taka, is it's a lot of freaking work. It's a tremendous amount of work. It's way more work. Whatever work you think it is, multiply that times three. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of work. It's not easy. It's not for the faint of heart. It's hard to be a part-time active investor. Uh, you got to be given full-time hours to it, even if that means you have a W-2 and you're spending your nights and your evenings and your weekends investing time in your business, which is, I know a lot how like we got started when we were first getting started. But that, that was just something I had a lot of time, very similar to Cody. You know, uh, I was looking to, to build my wealth. I didn't have a ton of capital to go out and just be throwing $100,000 six, seven, eight times a year in a deal. So I needed to go be active. And where I was in life, it just made sense. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that, sorry, go ahead. Cody, did you, did you have something? Well, no, I was going to expand on that because you, all, you asked us a second question Do we both actively and passively invest? Right. And the answer is absolutely yes. And for those who are listening, who are thinking that they want to be active, but don't know where to get started, and maybe you do have that liquidity, 
becoming a passive investor, in my opinion, is the absolute best way that you should get started. My very first investment multifamily was a passive investment. Mm. And I figured, hey, I can be invested and I can be looking behind the scenes and seeing how these deals are structured, how they're acquired, how they're operated, how are they communicating with investor relationships. So that way we can apply that to our business. So uh, I just wanted to make sure to highlight that. We both believe in actively and passively investing as well. You know, there's almost so much of your time and effort that can go around. So putting your money into somebody else's deal and let them, you know, executing, it's a great way to expand your portfolio. But I would encourage people to really consider that getting started. So Yeah. And I, you know, but I, I'll just kind of add on a few things here, right? So I think echo every single thing you guys said, right? I think I'll just take it to the next step. I think, Brian, you mentioned that active investors are the best passive investors. I'll actually take it one step further uh, to Cody's point. Being the most active passive investor makes you a better active investor, mm -hmm. right? Kind of like to your point, Cody, is when I started four or five years ago, I had a different challenge of being laid off and trying to figure out my life and my identity at that point as an immigrant was completely shaken because, you know, here I am in a green pasture land to make my life happen and everything is good. And then all of a sudden, boom, life hits you hard and I got to figure out the next path. And I knew at some point I want to be active, but I also knew the responsibility that involves taking on somebody else's money, right? If I'm taking 50, 100, 500K for your money, I know how hard you worked to get there because I know how hard it is to make a single dollar and how much effort and time you need to put in. Mm -hmm. So I want to respect that for my investors. And instead of just cooking up my first deal, just because I woke up one day and I wanted to be active, I think it's a very irresponsible thing. Right? Now, if you're playing with your own money, that's a very different story and that's more, more power to you. But if you're actually using somebody else's money and asking folks to invest in your deal just because you can learn, because like any other business, real estate and most, most importantly, multifamily, it's a business, it's not a single family home. It's running a business. You'll have employees at your property management company. You'll have vendors you need to negotiate. You have to negotiate contracts. It's much bigger than what, Brian, I was surprised you said times three, whatever you're thinking. I think it's times 100. Um, I thought that sounded a little low myself. Yeah, I think but. times three was low. I think you're maybe being too nice to everyone. I think it's times 10, times 20. And you're always learning on that, right? Yeah. So I think it's more, it's very important to figure out where do you want to be? And then what path do you want to do? Now, I always hear a question, syndicators make a lot of money. We may, but we also lose a lot of money. Uh, we lose a lot of time too. So I would love to hear your perspective, Cody and Brian, because a lot of my friends have come to me and said that we can buy our own apartments. Why do we have to share in syndication fees with you? How would you respond to that question? Yeah, well, let's really talk about that. Let's dive down because I think there's a little bit of a misperception there on just how much the sponsors make, right? If you really take into account how the sponsorships get paid, we get uh, paid. Cody, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt you, man. Let's just, let's just clarify the word sponsor because we haven't talked about that term yet. Sorry. I'm sorry. Active investors, general partners, the ones that are acquiring the deals, putting the deals together, raising the capital, getting the deal from you know just a thought to actual ownership, right? And so uh, those terms are used interchangeably. So but when you look at how the general partners get paid, an active investor gets paid in these syndications, right? It's really based on two things. Number one, fee structures. And number two, equity appreciation on the back end, right? So 
okay, we get an initial acquisition fee up front. We get a very small asset management fee for executing the deal. And then we hopefully benefit from an equity upside on the back end of the deal, right? Okay, so that sounds like a, a lot of money, which, yeah, I mean, that's why we love real estate. I mean, there's some substantial income that can be generated there. The problem is, is the time and effort that it goes into to getting a deal to acquisition, you know, finding the debt, negotiating the deal, raising the capital, going through the application loan process with the lenders and actually getting it to close is a tremendous amount of work. It is a tremendous amount of work. Then the real work then starts because then you got to go execute the business yeah. plan and do those life cycle the deal. You're really essentially working for free. I mean, let's be honest. You know, you're you're working your tail off to make sure that the business plan is getting executed accordingly, so that way you, the investors, can benefit uh, on your investment. And so, if you take the time, I think about doctors, right? If you, oh, doctors make all this money. Yeah, calculate the amount of hours they spend and whatnot, and you'll find out that their hourly salary is not so attractive anymore. And I would argue that the active side is very similar. We put a lot of time and effort and frustration into getting these deals executed and such. And so that's the benefit of being a passive investor. Yeah, your compensation on an individual basis might be a little bit less, but I guarantee you're sleeping a lot better at night than what we are on the active <laughs> side. Brian, what are your comments? Yeah, I mean, Cody Cody really highlighted that at a high level and in, a, in a great way. I mean, keep beating this horse here, but the amount of time that goes into this is tremendous. You know, as a passive investor, you get a call or a text or an email and it's like, hey, we've got this deal. Well, what they didn't tell you is that we took nine months to find it and we had to tour 30 other deals and underwrite another 100 properties in order to actually get that deal under contract. Right. And what they don't tell you is you've got several hundred thousand dollars of your own personal money on the table, whether it's hard money, due diligence costs, attorney mm -hmm. fees. And if the deal doesn't close, your guess whose money's gone? That's our money as the lead sponsor. Right. And then as Cody highlighted, again, during the actual acquisition, after the acquisition, then the operation phase, there's a ton of work that goes on. I mean, think about this, right? If you're spending a couple hours a week with your property manager to make sure that the deal's going well and you're being a good fiduciary of your investor's capital. If you have five or 10 deals, you're spending 10 or 20 hours a week just on asset management. That's not that's not time. That's time that could be spent looking for other deals. That's time that could be spent uh, on other parts of your business. So the asset management piece is tremendously time consuming. And all we take is a little 1% snip. So you buy a $20 million deal, you take 1%. Well, that's not putting food on the table if you have a business either. So it's a nominal amount of cash. And as Cody mentioned, really where we make our money is when we execute the business plan. We have to do a good job in order for us to get paid at the end of the day. So for anybody who's curious or kind of pushes back a little bit on the fee structure or anything, that's what I always like to tell people. Just give them some insight into our world and uh, hopefully they understand how much time and effort goes into it. And if they don't, that's okay. Maybe it's not the right type of investment vehicle for them. Yeah. Right. And, let's, right. and let's expand on that too, because you have a lot of people that get in and think they want to be active. And then when they get in, they're like, holy crap, like this is a lot more of an undertaking than what I thought it was going to be. Right. So to your point about like the, we've heard this comment before, well, I can go buy the deal myself. Yeah, you sure can go ahead. I mean, go ahead and call me when you're having trouble, because if you, I mean, this is three years of time effort spent to get to 850 units, which we're proud of. It's no small feat, but there's a lot of time that goes into that. And so if you think that you can put in that same time and effort, by all means, please do. You don't need us. Uh, but a lot of people find that out the hard way, especially business professionals, right? Mm -hmm. Well, I've got the liquidity. I can go just do it. 
Well, if you're working 50, 60 hours a week in your W-2, how are you going to put in the time, the 40 plus hours a week that it takes for us to go find the next deal and do that? So I think it's just something that people have to realize just how much work that goes into it before they really appreciate just what the sponsorships the sponsors do. And Saka, one thing yeah. I want to highlight is the best deals that we have found as operators, and I'm sure you agree with this, are from the ones that are from absentee landlords oh, that yeah. own Definitely. properties and don't manage them well. The last ass, you know, we see assets all the time that are like, oh, you asked the broker, hey, who owns this? Oh, it's a doctor in California. And part of the reason it's so attractive and not from a price standpoint, but there's so much meat on the bone is because they're absentee landlords. They bought it. They thought they made a bunch of money and maybe they did, but the properties, it's not going well. The tenants aren't happy. The place is dirty. It's got a lot of great opportunities. So uh, if you want to go be that active investor and, uh, you know, neglect the asset, uh, call me in three years when you're ready to sell. We'll, uh, yeah. we'll pick it up. We'll buy it, right? Yeah. We'll, <laughs> we'll buy, buy it. Absolutely. Don't, don't don't buy one, buy three. Babies. That's right. So we can, we can pick up all three. No, I think I couldn't agree with you guys more, right? So I think like, you know what, when we're looking back, like anyone's success, right? Anyone's success looks easy because you're only seeing the highlight reels and you only see the overnight aspect of it. But you forget the amount of effort they've put in. Be it us, be doctors, be whoever. Wherever we are, especially if you're a high-performing individual, you didn't get there because you woke up one night and everything worked in your favor. You had to work hard towards it. An active syndication is no different than that, right? And I'll give you an example. A very good partner of mine that I've, I've done syndication deals with him, he just lost $2 million of his own money because he put in that money as hard, which essentially in a very abstract man, it's a money that you need to put as an EMD, right? It's not EMD, but we'll use that as a term uh, for now. It's an EMD. It's a deposit that you put in to make sure the deal closes. He backed out of the deal for the right reasons, now the $2 million are stuck in escrow and there may be litigation. Maybe he'll get it. Maybe he won't get it, right? So there's a lot of money at stake. So time is one, right? Would you be able to spend 40 hours, 50 hours a week, 80 hours a week sometimes on top of whatever else you're doing in your life? The second thing is more importantly, are you able to and willing to risk your capital? Yeah. Because a lot of folks are not, right? A lot of folks are looking at, hey, I'm going to buy, find a Cody who can risk their capital. Well, why would you find a Cody to risk your cap, his capital? If you really believe in the deal, you should be able to risk your own capital. And us as syndicators, we collectively put our own money at risk because that's how much we believe in that deal. Right? Yeah. It's not because the upside is pretty good. Yes, upside, upside is good if it works out. There's a big if there. It may or may not work out, right? So we can't just buy it for the if, for the potential upside. We have to make sure the deal makes sense. The capital preservation is the number one goal for all of us. We want to make sure we won't lose capital. Mm -hmm. And then we grow the capital on top of it. Yeah. Yeah. And so I can, you know, we, we've spent a lot of time talking about the, the monetary incentives that I think draw people to the active side. But I think another barrier too that people really need to take into account is, you know, a lot of people come in here with the misperception that they're going to hit that home run on that one deal and they're going to multiply their wealth, you know, in a very short order. And that's not how this works, mm -hmm. right? When you taking on your investment real estate in your portfolio, this is a vertical that generates wealth over the long term, right? You don't just get rich off of one deal. Okay. You may have a really good cash uh, disposition in a short order. But I think that's another thing that people really need to realize is like you're going to come in and be active and you're going to go execute a deal and you're going to make all this money. And all of a sudden your, your lifestyle is going to change. It doesn't work that way. It You have to really build a business and a portfolio 
that it has economies of scale to really start seeing the benefits and the fruits of that labor. And that takes time. And that's where a lot of people also don't realize too, is you can't come into this and be impatient because if you do, you're going to get frustrated and you're going to quit before you even build any momentum. So now I think that's a valid point. So let's shift gears here, right? So given that maybe real, maybe not real, the barrier to entry to become an active syndicator is pretty low. Right, you could literally wake up tomorrow and say, "I want to become a syndicator." Um, now, can you or can you not? That's debatable. Should you? Should you not? It's very debatable. So let's assume for a second, I want to become a syndicator tomorrow, right? And I'm lucky enough to find a deal tomorrow. As a passive, we'll, we'll talk from a passive investor perspective, right? How do I evaluate a syndicator now? Because there are people like ourselves who are a little bit more seasoned. There are people who are ahead of us who have 20, 30, 40 years of syndication experiences. Mm -hmm. And there's somebody like me who just woke up in that example, woke up tomorrow, and I happen to find a deal, I'm going to become a syndicator. Right? How do you evaluate your partnership? Because you're also partnering with people up the chain, down the chain as well, right? How mm -hmm. do you evaluate your partners who you want to work with? And then let's translate that same reasoning for how should a passive investor evaluate a syndicator? Well, whether you're active or passive, it all comes down to experience and track record, right? Those two key fundamentals are more important than anything else, right? Because, and, and I would argue it's even more important in today's market cycle than it's ever been. And the reason is, is because if you look back at real estate over the last decade, you would really, really have to do some dumb stuff to mess it up. I mean, the market has been so bullish, you would have to be an absolute dummy to really lose money in real estate. And let's talk about multifamily particularly, right? There's a lot of bad operators out there that have been carried by the market. And just because of the demand for the asset type, they've been able to exit and still deliver great equity multiples when they sell, but maybe have never paid out a single distribution throughout the entire life cycle of the deal, right? So... I think when you look into a market cycle like we are now, where the capital markets, the cost of capital has exponentially increased, right? So we have capital market headwinds that are working against this. We have seller expectations that haven't adjusted to where the market really should be. We are now in a point where operations are going to be so critical. The market's no longer going to carry these deals to a nice exit. You're really going to have to execute to a high level to make sure that you hit your projected returns. And you only find operations that excel with experienced operators, people that have been through it, have been in the business, that have a track record of success in no matter what cycles and downturns and such. So for us, and I think for anybody listening, whether you're active or passive, partnering with people that have the experience and the track record to support their business is absolutely critical. So Brian, you got any thoughts there? Yeah, that's definitely, I would say the one A point, uh, the track record, their experience is really important. And that's hard for a lot of, you said you woke up today and decided you were sponsor a uh, socket. That's the hardest part about getting started, doing that first deal, right? It's, it's mm -hmm. getting over the hump, so to speak. Uh, but once you do, it gets easier and easier and the snowball starts to happen. But the second thing personally that I look for, whether I'm investing as a passive investor or I'm looking for an active partner is there's a cheesy saying in our space and I'm full of all, a lot of them is that uh, you bet on the jockey, not on the horse. And that just means to me when I hear that saying is that you want to do business with people you like. I want to do business with people that I will go 
hang out with, grab a beer with, you know, go, go to dinner with. I don't want to do business with somebody that has low morals, low integrity, and that isn't somebody that I could see myself getting married to, so to speak, because we've said this earlier, these investments are illiquid. And best case scenario, maybe two to three years, more realistically, probably the full life cycle, five-year holds. Maybe you're investing in a seven or 10-year hold. So these are long-term investments. And whether you're passive or active, you want to make sure that the person on the other side of the table that either you're partnering with is somebody that you want to do business with and somebody that you know that when times get tough, if and when, more likely when, there's somebody who can do business in a professional manner. They're going to communicate clearly. They're going to be transparent. They're going to do business with integrity. And they're going to make the best decision for the asset and for the investors and for the residents on board. And they're going to put themselves last. So there's a series of questions you just have to kind of ask yourself. And then ultimately, it comes down to, which is hard to describe, it comes down to your gut feeling. Like, what yeah. do you feel about that person? Right? Do you feel like when times turn, if things get a little rough, they're going to operate with integrity. And that's just a question each person has to ask themselves. It's not just about, you know, we talk to a lot of uh, engineers that are interested in multifamily and they're always, they always want to say, show me the spreadsheet, show me the spreadsheet. I'm like, look, I can make that spreadsheet dance. It'll look like the best deal in the world, right? And you're probably not going to catch which lever I pulled to make it do that. You can turn any deal into a deal if you really mm -hmm. wanted to. But you have to ask yourself, well, just because it looks good on an Excel spreadsheet, do you even like the person at the other end of the table? And you shouldn't give fifty or $100,000 to the person that you don't like. So that's my second most important bullet point after to that track record and trust. Yeah, yeah. Brian, that's a really good point. And so I, I want to make sure to highlight one other thing too. And here's what people really need to be aware of. You mentioned like, hey, the barrier to entry is so low to be a syndicator now. You're absolutely right. Anybody can wake up today and say, hey, I'm a syndicator. And that's exactly what we've seen. Right. If you look at the amount of quote unquote operators or syndicators that are in the market today, the, the level of competition for our space has never been higher. But the problem with that is if you look at the average tenure of all of those people that have been in the business, I would argue that you would probably find it's less than five years. Right. And really think about that. You know, when we're talking about these, like the relationships, the trust factor, the track record, all these things come with time. And look, Brian and I are in this bucket too. I mean, we've, we've only been doing this for three years, but the average lifespan of a syndicator is less than five years. So you have a lot of people that are getting in there and they're still learning, you know, they're still learning this business. So it's very rare that you find those guys that have been in business for, you know, 10, 15, 20 years that have been through multiple economic downturns or cycles that have been through those challenges and issues that they can speak to and help investors feel confident in their ability to execute and, and face challenges and such. So I think it's really, really important when we talk about track record. Look, it's not a absolute like line in the sand. Oh, you've only been in business for three years. I can't do deals with you. No, it shouldn't be like that. There's people operating with high degree of integrity. So let's get that out of the way. So go, go ahead, finish your thought. I, I was just gonna say, just to finish the thought is, again, just you really, really, really need to be aware of most of the people that are in our industry today haven't been in the business long enough to really have gone through enough challenges to where they can really execute. This market cycle we're finding ourselves in now is going to highlight that. So I think people just need to be very cautious and take their time vetting the people that they really want to work with, as I think hopefully Brian and I highlighted. Yeah, I think couldn't agree more with what you guys are saying. Right? I think it's really the person first, the individuals first, the deal second. As I always tell my investors, right, you really need to first look at the team that's on the job, that's going to do your job. 
Mm-hmm. Second is going to be the market, because if that team you can deploy in any market, if the team is right, they'll eventually turn a coal into diamond, right? Mm-hmm. But then if you get the wrong team, they're going to turn the diamond into coal very fast. Because <laughs> we've seen that, we've seen that happen as well. The team has, it's the best deal since a slice of bread, but the team didn't know how to operate and it just went, everything just went south, right? So it's all about the jockey, as you call Brian, it's the operator, it's the team that's in there. And a lot of time gets spent on two things. One is I really need to go touch and feel this property, right? Like there's some some friend of mine, they're like, oh, this property is in my neighborhood. I feel very comfortable investing in this multifamily deal. I'm like, do you know this indicator? Do you know what their track record is? Have they ever done this before? And the answer to your point, Cody, if the answer is no, they have not, that does not mean you should shut the doors. Right. That essentially means you have to evaluate even more. Right, you have to dig even deep, even deeper. Their background, their partnerships, their depth of relationships, their capital uh, access to capital. Because if the deal starts to go south, you need to infuse more capital. Are they going to ask for a capital call? Are they have deep enough pockets that they could bring their own capital to the deal? Mm-hmm. Right. These are the few things that we have to start thinking. But to your point, the syndication business got opened up in 2013, 2014 when it just started to explode. Right? Yeah. Because that's when it became open to a lot of folks who didn't necessarily have billions of dollars sitting in their bank. So if the business itself, if that industry itself is so new, chances are us going to find people who have decades of experience, who have gone through multiple down cycles, is almost negligible. Right? I mean, there's always a possibility you may find somebody, but chances of you finding that person. So just because somebody has a year or two or three or four years experience, you say, I'm never going to work with you because you don't have that track record. You may not be able to find the unicorn that you're looking for, right? So you, you want to have a fine balance in there. Now, I'm going to switch gears and ask one more thing for you guys, right? So for your passive investment deals, what is your criteria? Because I think a lot of my audience would probably be more on the passive side, right? Mm-hmm. So as you, we just talked, we just probably scared a lot of people to invest in syndications <laughs> because nobody has the experience, right? So I want to keep things in perspective. Thank you, Cody. You talked about it, and I wanted to make sure I repeat it, that just because somebody doesn't have a track record doesn't mean you should not invest. Track record comes in multiple different varieties, right? Maybe they bought, maybe they were in private equity before, and they've run successful businesses, they turned over businesses before. Stuff like that, they may have experience that's transferable. Sure. So when you're doing your passive investments, of course, you're investing in your own deals as well. But let's say if I were to bring a deal to you, what are the questions you're going to ask me? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, first off, I think you you first need to identify what your true investing thesis is. What is most important to you? You know, what are you looking for cash flow? Are you looking for equity appreciation? Are you looking for tax shelter? It's very important that you first figure out what your investing thesis is and what your risk appetite is. And then you need to go build those relationships with the sponsors that are executing those deals, right? And then once you identify that, I'm focusing on the person. I'm focusing on the operator. You know, again, What's your background? How long have you been in business? How many deals have you done? What's the performance on those deals? And this is key too. Listen, how many challenges have you faced? How many times have you lost money? I want to work with somebody that has had a downturn or had a hard time, you know, because those experiences where you learn the best lessons. Somebody says, Oh, I've never lost any money in this, or I've never, I'm everything's been, you know, rosy and, and to the moon. I'm not doing a deal with you because you haven't been battle tested. And I don't want you gambling with my money 
to get battle tested, right? Or you're not telling me the truth. Or, <laughs> or you're not telling me the truth. <laughs> One or the exactly other. Yeah. right. Yeah. If you've been in this business long enough, whether residential or commercial doesn't matter, you're going to lose money. It's yeah. going to happen. You're going to make a mistake, but it's how you recover from that mistake that is so critical to me. So I really want to spend a lot of time asking again, you know, background, track record, history of performance, challenges or times where they've lost money. And most importantly, what's their communication style for me too, right? Because going back to Brian's point, like when you're engaging with relationships, it's all communication. You know, things are going to happen in your deals. Things are going to go south. You're going to have challenges. How you communicate that and can you be transparent about that? To me, it is the defining moment or reflection point where if I don't feel like I'm getting that transparency from you or I'm not getting that communication from you, then we're not going to be able to establish that trust. So those are the things that I really focus on when I'm talking about passive investing. Yeah, Brian, anything to add? Yeah, those are all great, great points. Uh, the communication for me is definitely a point. I, I like to look at the team to your point socket. I want to know what their background is. If they're newer syndicators, just fine by me. Because sometimes the newer people are the most hungry. They're finding deals that you and I can't find because they're just digging in places we never thought to look because they're really hungry. So I'm not, I'm not necessarily against somebody who's new, but I want to know their, their background. You know, where'd they go to school? Were they in business before? And then I want to know about the team because it's very, very, very unlikely that somebody's doing it by themselves. So I want to know about their, their other partners in the deal. If they have a key principal, if they have other co-sponsors, I want to know how they met, how long they've known each other. It's kind of a red flag to me if you and I meet today and we're doing a deal tomorrow because I don't know you, right? Well, Cody and I, when we partner with other operators, it's always been with somebody we've had years of experience or a relationship with. We, we don't meet somebody today and two weeks from now do a deal with them. All the people we're partnered with, we've known for years. So that's really important as well. And then it goes back to what Cody was saying, like the communication point is so, so important and them being willing to be transparent. I think that's important. There's going to, it's a five-year business plan. So in five years, there's going to be some challenges. What I want to know is when there's challenges, are you going to be transparent with me and you're going to learn and move on from it? So hearing about past stories and experiences, and it doesn't have to be that person's, like I said, maybe it's their first or second deal, but who on the team has that track record? Who on the team has that experience, whether it's the key principal or another general partner that's putting the deal together? that can highlight and kind of help them avoid those landmines. And one other thing that we haven't really talked too much about is I want to know where they learned all this from. I think it's really important to find out where they got educated. Because to me, if somebody tells me they're in a mastermind or they're in a mentorship group, you know, these, these um, multifamily education programs, one, I know they're very expensive, which tells me they've invested just like going to college. They've invested... 10, 20, 30, 40, $50,000 in coaching and mentorship. And two, it tells me they're surrounded by a network of people that are invested in seeing them succeed and are going to help catch them if for some reason they fall. So hearing that somebody's in any type of group or mastermind, whether it's business or if it's multifamily in particular, that's really important to me as well. Yeah. So it's, it's all about your ecosystem and the network, right? Yep. It's a team sport and you got to lean on people. And if you don't have that network, at one point, you're going to get stumped. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So I think we can we can talk at length again, like, you know, like any other time. Um, I think we're going to have five hours of conversation and still won't be enough. <laughs> so we're going to do a quick pause here and kind of switch gears. So um, Brian and Cody, if somebody needs to reach out to you, what's the best way to reach you? Yeah. So I'm sure I'll you guys are on every single platform. We so are. where can they find you? We are. So first of all, I want to say thank you for having us. But I want to I want to motivate your audience to to definitely reach out to us and connect with us. But 
Uh, what I want to do is I want to ask every person who's listened to the show is first go and leave Socket a review, right? Leave him a review for his podcast. Look up the Migrate to Wealth podcast. Go leave him a five-star review, hopefully not a one-star review. Leave him a five-star review. And then if you t- leave him a review and you send me a screenshot, I'm going to give you the phone number and you text me. Uh, I would love to have a conversation with you. Cody would love to have a conversation with you. We've got some resources available to show you how passive investing work, the type of playbook you should really be looking at when you're looking at these types of deals. We would love to share that with you, but you got to do me a favor first and you got to leave Socket a review on his podcast. So uh, if you text us at 832-743-1400, send us that screenshot of you leaving Socket five-star review for the podcast. We'd love to connect with you and talk some more. Hey, keep talking. Don't stop. I'm just joking. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you. I really appreciate for the call to action. So thank you. It means a lot. You're welcome. Send us the invoice later there. uh, (laughs) Oh, I will do, man. I I know we talked about some. I'm going to increase that money a little bit. (laughs) Hey, guys. So uh, shifting gears completely, I will include these uh, disinformation in the show notes below. So if people didn't get a chance to get the uh, number, the phone number that Brian just gave, uh, it'll be included in the show notes. And I do appreciate an honest review. I'm sure Brian will still talk to you if you leave me a one-star review. <laughs> so don't just leave me a five-star because you want to get that call. He'll, he'll still take your call. So I think let's go towards the end of the show here. So we have two more questions. One question is, and that's for both of you, your independent answers for both the questions. One's going to be for your 20-year-old self. I know you're not too far from that age, but if you were 20-year-old, Today, what would the advice you wish you had to make your migration in life easier? Right. And wealth, wealth is holistic for me, right? It's not just about money, it's about physical, it's about mental, it's about relationships, your spirituality, everything else. So, what is that one advice you wish you had when you were 20 to make your migration in life more intentional, less painful? For me, I would definitely say be patient, you know, and when you're 20 years old, you expect, you know, life to come at you quickly, or you're just motivated or fired up about whatever you're ambitious about, and you expect everything that just happens today, right? And, you know, you fast forward now, I'm 36 years old, I look back and I see, man, how much time flies. And then, you know, how many times that I've, in my early career, were pursuing opportunities and because I got impatient or I got the shiny object syndrome and I, I shifted, you know, gears or, or shifted focus and I never really gained any momentum and I lost a lot of time. I lost a lot of money. I lost a lot of education along the way. And if I'd have just been patient and focused on just one vertical and just give it time and put it in time and effort, then, then, you know, my outlook would have been completely different. Now I don't regret my path. I love everything that I've gone through has made me where we are today. But I would definitely say patience is key, you know, especially when you're talking about real estate entrepreneurship, you do not get rich overnight. Mm-hmm. You do not get wealthy overnight. It takes time and discipline. So that would be my advice to my young self. Thank you, Cody. Yeah, for me, I mean, that's great. I, I love that one, Cody. And that's something I still work on to this day, being patient. But I'll go in a little bit of a different direction. There's that cheesy saying that your your net worth is your network. 
And that's something I think when you're young and you lack confidence and you lack experience in the in the business world and real estate, whatever it might be, that you don't surround yourself with the people that can really help you get to where you want to be. So if I was talking to myself as a 20-year-old, I would say, hey, go out there and shake hands with the right people. Meet the people that can help you get to where you want to be. Because Cody and I now being in our 30s, when we see an 18-year-old, we were at a, a, a speaking engagement uh, two days ago and there was like a 17-year-old there a multifamily real estate conference, right? Nice. And we've seen this somewhat often where these these younger kids fresh out of college or still in high school are showing up to these events. A lot of times their their parents are bringing them or they're finding it on their own. That is phenomenal. Imagine if you were doing what you did today, Socket, but doing it when you were 20. Oh, Just imagine where you would yeah. be, right? We would we would be we probably wouldn't be on this podcast, right? But that's a we will okay. be to your point earlier, Brian. We would be having enough cash to put in passive investment deals. <laughs> there, there you go, right. just retire. <laughs> exactly. So go out there, build your network, talk to people that are where you want to be. Don't let anybody tell you you can't do something. Your mindset is important, and that's how you truly migrate to wealth. I love that. I love that. No, thank you again, uh, both of you. Last question. So, you know, at this point in our journey, we've got too deep into your own journey, kind of like your personal investment philosophies, who you are to who you wish you were when you were 20. Let's take a very, very high level view now, which is more, more on all encompassing, which is what is one wish for you for humanity to migrate towards, right? Because we are, no matter what we believe, we're all connected to each other, right? At some level, and it's 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 a world we live in. While we have a very individualistic life, each one of us, but we also have a bigger purpose, whatever the purpose may be. So what is that wish for you, Cody and Brian, for humanity to migrate towards if they migrate towards that intentionally? I would say for me, it's developing the skill to be empathetic and compassionate. And I feel like as humans, let's just talk about the American culture as a, in general. Mm -hmm. We have lost our ability to see one another for people, for who they are. Mm -hmm. Versus all we do now is we look at people and we identify them based on their political affiliation or whatever other bias we want to tag them with. And we have seemed to forgotten that everybody's different. We can agree to disagree. We can agree to be different. That's okay. That's what makes us human. That's what makes us a civilization. If we were all the same exact person and we all thought the same exact way, this would be a very boring world, right? So it's we need to learn how to accept people for who they are again. And it's okay, Socket, if you agree on this topic and I disagree with you, it's okay. You know, it doesn't make you a bad person. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that you're no, you're an awful human being. So I would really love to see the world just learn how to be people again, learn how to be empathetic and compassionate to one another and just accept people for who they are, you know, quit judging people by whatever their affiliations are, whatever they do and just see them for who they are. So uh, that would be my, my goal for society. Well, thank you, Cody. I, I think you're two actually very similar, right? You're turning yourself patience and empathy. They actually go hand in hand mm -hmm. because you have to pause when you're trying to process what somebody else is saying. If you just want to jump in and say, I disagree, or no, I don't agree. You got to have some patience, some pausing to make sure you can reflect on what somebody else is saying or where they're coming from. And that requires a lot of restraint, a lot of thinking, a lot of, a lot of emotional maturity and, and mental maturity. So I mean, I love, I love what you said that. Thank, Thank you for sharing that. For me, I'm going to use the word gratitude and I'm going to 
make some assumptions here that most of your listeners live in the States here. And if not, that's okay too. But I think we've gotten away from, and this is something I am constantly working on. I try to do it every day is what am I grateful for? Because I think we lose, we're out of touch with reality that we live in America. This is an abundant country. There's the land of the free, the land of the opportunity, whatever you want to call it. And most of the things that we get upset about, we don't like about what's going on or whatever, they're all, you know, to use the term first world problems, they're all problems that other people in other countries who weren't as fortunate as us wish they had, you know? So I think we need to get back to making sure we understand that we need to focus on being grateful for what we have. Do we want more and do we want to push the needle? Of course, but that doesn't mean we should do it and lose focus from what we already have. I try to remind myself, like if I died tomorrow, got hit by a bus, uh, yeah, I didn't, you know, maybe I didn't accomplish my multifamily business goals because I died too young, but I still set myself up for success. I set my wife up yeah. for success and I did the best I could to leave an impact on people. And I need to be grateful for that, no matter how many dollars are in my bank account or how many doors I own or how many buildings I had. So just trying to be grateful for what you have, reflect on it. You know, before you go to bed at night, you think about what, what were you grateful for that day? When you wake up in the morning, what are you grateful for that day? Um, try to show other people gratitude. You know, I try to tell my wife, I'm grateful for you. I appreciate you supporting me. I love you. You're beautiful. Like all the little things that, you know, I think we sometimes get caught up being busy and just being grateful for those little things. Uh, I think that is really something that if we all did that, the world would be a slightly better place. And uh, we would also have more confidence because we would be getting that, you know, reassurance from people. So, yeah, no, I think that's such an important skill and it's scarcity, right? Gratitude. And I always say that, you know what? You could be thankful for great things in your life. You know what? Somebody told me recently, you should be thankful for all the adversities in your life. Mm -hmm. Because when you look at gratitude, it's like a positive spin on let's reflect on what we're thankful for. And we're also thankful for good things in our life, right? Mm -hmm. But I think if you actually take one step further, we should actually be more thankful for anything that's adverse in our life because that's when the maximum amount of growth is happening. And if you're not reflecting on those those moments, you may miss out a lot of things. Absolutely. Well, Cody and Brian, as always, we can talk at length, all of us. I think we share, we cut from the same cloth, although I don't have the blue shirt, but that's all right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> We're going to have to fix that, Brian. <laughs> well, thank you again for taking time off your busy schedule. I really appreciate it. And I will include your point of contact, the number that they need to send you information at in my show notes. Thank you again. I love the conversation. Thanks, Zaka. Thanks, Zaka. If you got value from this episode, you might consider sharing this content with a friend. But most importantly, be sure to take action on what you've learned. One way you can take the next step is to connect directly with Socket on an investor call. That link is waiting for you in the show notes below. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Please consult your own advisors when making any investment decisions. Keep listening. We'll see you on the next episode.